Hey there. This week's episode, I'm going to start with a quote, which I don't normally do. I don't know if I've ever done, but it struck me this week and it was appropriate for today's topic. It's a quote from Socrates. Shocking, right? True wisdom comes to each of us when we realize how little we understand about life, ourselves, and the world around us. And that's exactly how I feel this week as we jump into WTF has happened since January 6th here in the U.S. So really the only way I see us moving forward as a more unified country and really a global community is to realize that we don't have all the answers, but that we have to understand each other. We have to understand the other humans around us with compassionate conversations and not social cancellation. So today we are going to talk about the Capitol insurrection, the next steps in the remaining days of the Trump presidency and speech and social media. It's a lot, it's heavy, but this is the place where the Lawnards have compassionate conversation and someone needs to be having real conversations. So let's get into it. Hey there, welcome to The Emily Show. I'm your host, Emily D. Baker, the badass lawyer. This is where I break down the legal shit behind the news and pop culture stories you want to talk about. I've been a licensed attorney for over 15 years. I'm a former prosecutor, and I'm a huge fan of the cursey words. Let's get right into it. Law nerds, mount up. Before I jump all the way into this topic, I just want to take a moment to remind you that we do have a text crew. It is me texting you. It's where I can keep you up to date on when I go live, any new information that drops. I have a feeling the news is going to continue to move quickly over the next, you know, two, three weeks, month. Hopefully then it will slow down and we'll be able to just go back to talking about like, is Kim Kardashian really getting divorced or not? But if you want to stay in the loop as things happen, that is the best place to do it. It is where I am able to get in touch with you the fastest textemily.com is where you can join the text crew. If you are in North America, we are working on bringing that to our worldwide audience. And for the worldwide audience, I also do update on the Twitters, you know, until they, until they shut all of us down. (laughs) I, I joke, but only half and on the Instagrams at the Emily D Baker on social media everywhere. This is a heavy topic. And though we're talking about politics, we're kind of not talking about politics today because a lot of the stuff we're talking about shouldn't be political. It's being politicized, but I don't think some of these fundamental conversations should be political because they're in all of our best interest, no matter where you fall ideologically. What I'm seeing in America right now is a fundamental lack of trust And the flames of that division in our country continue to be stoked by politicians and the media. And I don't like what I'm seeing. Many don't believe what's being reported or discussed. And there's a fundamental distrust. And that is something that we have to overcome because until we overcome that fundamental distrust of media, of facts, of what is told to us, of each other sometimes, we can't have the conversations that are going to help us move our country forward. I really do fear that more and more will fall deeper into echo chambers and that echo chambering, especially on social media during a pandemic where we're all so isolated anyway, is going to make it easier for people to other those who are different from us. And when I talk about othering, othering is pointing people out or grouping people together that are different than you based on race, religion, orientation, ideology, socioeconomic status, ability, disability, just about any trait or characteristic that is different you can other someone about. And that is hugely, hugely problematic. Othering makes it easy to point fingers, to blame, to excuse behavior. It makes it easier for hatred to grow, I think, and for discrimination to take place, and it cannot stand. And it happens on all sides of the political spectrum, but it has to be called out on all sides of the political spectrum. I believe that our strength as Americans is in 
this diverse nation that we have and that those differences make us strong, but only when we listen to each other, even when it's hard to listen to each other. And that's what I'm seeing right now is people are exhausted. People are emotional and it makes it very hard to have compassionate conversation with people who have different philosophies than you, particularly different ideological philosophies. But when it comes to listening with compassion to opposing viewpoints, even though it's difficult, it's essential. But we can't discount the fact that our country and our world community is under tremendous stress. And being under stress can make us feel like we're under attack. And when we're under attack, processing information in a logical way is almost impossible. Our brains literally don't allow that to happen because we are still in that fight, flight, or freeze mode. The pandemic has frustrated all of this. People are exhausted. People are insecure in financial positions, in food. Our country is struggling with joblessness. There is fear still over this pandemic, and there is a lot of othering going on within the pandemic, just in something as simple as mask wearing and not mask wearing. And so little things that ripple into big things are becoming divisive. And it feels like almost everything right now is becoming divisive. And it is tremendously uncomfortable. And I'm sure you're feeling it too. I'm feeling it too. And it's hard to know how to talk about it, particularly on social medias that are just text-based like Twitter, where you have no nuance and can't really have a deeper conversation based on character limit. It's made for a quick snapback. It's not made for a deeper conversation. And these are topics that warrant deeper conversation. It's clear to me that there are those in this country who, regardless of ideology, feel voiceless, feels that those in power do not have their best interest at heart, and feel that our structures and our government have done nothing to protect them. And until we address that in a non-political and bipartisan way, I don't know how we move forward because people are feeling that way no matter where they fall on the political spectrum. And until we address those things, and until we address the fact that not all Americans are treated the same way in this country, we aren't going to be able to move forward. When we have particularly issues of things like riots, and since we're talking about the Capitol insurrection, it's an easy example to draw, they need to be treated the same. Riots should be treated the same. The people who riot in an unlawful way should be prosecuted. Those who protest in a lawful First Amendment way, should not be prosecuted. That should be a fundamental and easy concept to grasp. But everyone who participates and exercises their right to free speech should be protected in their right to do so. It doesn't mean that everyone's going to agree with what everyone says, and they don't have to. We are a diverse nation with diverse viewpoints, and it should be that way. But when people in power, whether that is political power or corporate power, seek to divide us along those differences to feel more secure in their own positions, it's destructive for our country. I think that those in power need to be held accountable. I also think that we have to hold people accountable for their actions and not just what people speculate that they think. I feel very much in the last few days, like we're getting into this um, minority report situation, that movie with Tom Cruise, where they were um, running algorithms to figure out if people were going to commit crimes before they committed them. And so they would prosecute them before they committed the crime so that people wouldn't commit crime. And that movie kind of goes down that rabbit hole of thought policing in a way that lately I'm like, wait, we can't, what? No, 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 we can't just assume people are going to do a thing. We can take reasonable precautions against a thing, but we have to hold people responsible for their actions. So today's topics, we're going to cover the Capitol insurrection. We're going to cover what's next in the Trump presidency in its last days, and we're going to cover free speech and social media. It's a lot of topics, and there is a lot more going on, and, 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 there's probably going to be more that happens between me recording this 
and this going live because the podcast is pre-recorded because it is research-based and takes some time. Congress is supposed to vote on the presidential impeachment on Wednesday. So when we get to that part, we'll talk about that too. Let's talk about the insurrection in the Capitol. First, if you've heard that word thrown around a lot and you're like, what is an insurrection? I get it. An insurrection is a violent uprising against an authority or government. That is what happened in the Capitol. It was a violent uprising against our own government and members of our government. And again, agree or disagree with what's going on with the election, a violent uprising is never, ever going to be the answer in America. We have processes, and those processes in this election have been exhausted, and it's done. It's done now. The court, the courts have been involved for, it feels like, 100 years, but months. None of those cases have been fruitful. The Supreme Court has had the opportunity to reject multiple cases that have come before it, and that is how our system works. And now we reach the end point where the votes have been tabulated, they have been certified, and we move forward towards an inauguration. I've been asked on social media quite a lot if I thought there was a coup or an attempted coup d'etat on our government. My understanding and the operating definition I generally work with on a coup is that it is a military uprising to overthrow a party in power. And that is why I think insurrection is really what this was for what we saw, because it seems that the core of it was to disrupt the process of tabulating the electoral college votes. And I think that that was led to by statements leading up to this by the president and not just the statements in the speech at the ellipse, statements leading up to um, that initial protest or uh, rally, whatever you want to call it, before people marched on the Capitol. And statements like, this election had been stolen, statements like somehow intimating that Vice President Pence had some constitutional authority, which he doesn't, to somehow overthrow the vote counts, that even if Congress members and senators stood up and objected to the vote count, that that would somehow overturn the election. Those things to me never seemed like, well, because they weren't actual possibilities. Yes, members of Congress can object to the votes and members of the Senate can object to the votes. Some did and say, we still have questions about voter irregularities, but voter irregularities are something wholly different than widespread voter fraud and voter irregularities might be appropriate to be looked into. And this seemed to me to be what the senators and members of Congress objecting to the votes were asking for, an investigation into anomalies and processes, but this is something that has been brought up election after election, not in the way of protesting the votes being counted, but in each election cycle we have had for the last number of years saying there are some voter procedures, policies, and irregularities that need to be addressed. And at some point it's going to have to be addressed or this is going to keep coming up. But those irregularities do not rise to the level of widespread voter fraud, according to over 60 court cases that were unsuccessful. And according to a large number of senators who were saying, we have been told this by the president, but we have still not seen any evidence. And there still has not been a presentation of hard evidence of wide-scale voter fraud. And that's where we're at, moving towards an inauguration. It concerns me that we're at a place of such distrust as a country that people really did seem to think that somehow President Trump's statements that Vice President Pence could overturn this election were true, because that's not how that works. Also, objections on the floor were never going to practically upend the results of this election, nor should they have. Yes, they can call for investigations and conversation, but they were never actually going to overturn the election, and people were led to believe that they were. And this is where we're getting this othering of, I don't even believe the media that's saying this is not an avenue for what you think it is. Like, I don't think what you think that means is actually what that means. And that is so destructive to us, and it happens 
not just here, but in other things that have come up this year as well, where you see the facts and what's being reported. And then what's being reported quickly gets into the kind of social fabric of what's believed. And then undoing that is very dangerous. And this quick to report and speculate before there are facts known is very problematic to me. And it is going to continue to be problematic for me, I'm sure. But it's where I'm very frustrated with people calling for more answers from the Capitol. The investigations aren't done yet. There are lots of things I would like to see answered too. I particularly would like to know what the decisions were leading up to this event that led Capitol Police to be caught off guard by the amount of people who stormed the Capitol. They didn't seem to have enough people to not only protect those within the chambers of Senate and Congress and the vice president and evacuate them and also secure the building at the same time. It seems that they were caught tremendously off guard and what pre-planning and pre-decisions went into allowing that to happen. I also have questions about how the kind of intergovernmental agencies worked together in this between Metro DC police, Capitol police, and the National Guard and and what those decisions were ahead of time. We've seen resignations from lack of command. We're seeing the Sergeant of Arms of the Senate um, being removed, the Sergeant of Arms of the House being removed. There were definitely security failings here. And I have a lot of questions about how those decisions were made. And hopefully at some point we will have clearer answers to why there were not enough people on the ground when this happened. What we are seeing, though, is quite a lot of people identified through social media and arrested. And there is a link to a New York Times article that's in the show notes and in the description on YouTube that has some of the more notable arrests. And I'm hoping that they will continue to extend that article as more arrests are made. But the Buffalo hat guy, you know, all the pictures that you've seen from social media, the the Buffalo hat guy with the face painted, he was arrested on Saturday. The smiley podium guy, that dude, that, that picture is so deep. There's so many things that are deeply disturbing to me, but that dude just smiling at the camera, taking the speaker's podium. It's just so egregious and unaware and disrespectful. Either way, he was arrested in Florida. Sorry, Floridians of the jokes about Florida that might be made. He was arrested in Florida. Um, the guy with kicking his feet up on Pelosi's desk, who allegedly took some of her mail and other things, was arrested in Arkansas. The dude that was in all the tactical gear with the zip cuffs, which concerns me deeply, like what did, what were you planning to do with the zip cuffs? Like, were you storming the Capitol to kidnap and or citizen arrest members of Congress or the vice president? Like, why did you have zip cuffs? Either way, he was arrested in Tennessee. And then the West Virginia House of Delegates dude who live streamed himself storming the Capitol was shockingly arrested. That the, the, the staggering lack of judgment is just, is just. And there's, there's really no downplaying these acts. But because the Capitol has video, because social media has video, because so many of these fuckers were just taking streaming videos and photos, we will see a lot of these types of arrests affected after the fact. I know that people were frustrated that more arrests weren't made. The perspective I have on that and after listening to different interviews with members of law enforcement is that arrests are tremendously labor intensive for law enforcement. Law enforcement simply did not have the people on the ground to arrest the people because they needed to A, protect the members of Congress and the vice president and the members of the Senate. B, try to retake and secure the building that was breached and then try to sweep out the area surrounding the Capitol for curfew and then go back and worry about arrests. And so it seems to me that that's why arrests weren't effectuated at the time, because there simply weren't enough police to arrest the people that were doing the things. So hopefully we will see some answers about why the procedural and tactical decisions were made by law enforcement. It looks like the initial estimates for the um, the rally that the president spoke at were about 5,000 people, and then that was extended to 30,000 people. From what I saw, 
just from watching news reports, it looked like more than that to me. But also, I am not an expert in crowds, but it looked like quite a substantial amount of people at the Capitol. And the president was also tweeting at people to come to the Capitol in the midst of turning up the pressure, saying that the election had been stolen, stop the steal. You know, somehow we're going to cheer on the members of Congress to do the right thing. Do the right thing and what? And say, okay, we don't want these votes certified. Okay, but then they're going to be certified. There's going to be debate and then they're going to be certified. So people were were built up for something that was never going to happen. And that is tremendously problematic because this, this two set of facts thing that we're starting to get is, is really, really divisive. And I don't know how we wind it back. How do you build trust again when people fundamentally don't trust the people that are telling them things? Don't trust the media. Don't trust that facts are facts. Don't trust that the newspapers are printing the truth. I don't know how we unwind that, except I hope we see a rise of shows not just like mine, but others where you have options to seek out information elsewhere and not just rely on television. And I think that's why YouTube has really grown so much during this pandemic and why podcasts are continuing to grow because you can find voices that you trust and find people that are in their own integrity that aren't kind of tied into a large media corporation where they have to toe a certain line or not. I can get on this podcast and talk about whatever I want. If people don't like it, they may try to cancel me on Twitter, but I am not beholden to anyone to pay my bills except for myself. So I can stand in my integrity and call out fuckery on all sides where I see it because I run inherently distrustful <laughs> of um, of all things and healthfully skeptical. I have lots of questions. And then I would like to see things line up and then I go, okay, there, that's what that is. So what comes next in the remaining days of the Trump presidency? Today, Monday, January 11th, Nancy Pelosi asked or attempted to pass a resolution asking Congress to require that Mike Pence starts to invoke the 25th Amendment. I will get into the 25th Amendment in a moment, but that was blocked by Republicans. And we have to remember that the 25th Amendment was created anticipating presidential incapacity really due to health, a stroke, um, being attacked, being in surgery, or being killed. It was not really set up to deal with the circumstances at hand. But I will jump into the 25th Amendment, tell you a little bit about what it says, and let you decide what you think. But that is already kind of a non-starter. Pence, it doesn't seem at this point, is going to go down the procedure for removing Trump. Does that mean that Trump can't choose to resign? It'd probably be the best thing for the Republican Party at this point. Do I think he'll do that? No. But political pressure being what it is, you never know. So then Pelosi introduced new articles of impeachment, and it looks like the House will vote on those on Wednesday. What does that mean in all practicality? It means that they will attempt to impeach President Trump for a second time and then have it go to a trial in the Senate. It seems that the thought on this is that after a trial in the Senate, A, he can lose the things like his pension, uh, secret service for life, travel budget, and things like that, but also they can vote to prevent him from running for office again. I think his own behavior has well precluded him from running for office again. Also, I'm not 100% clear on the legal procedure of doing a Senate trial once someone is no longer a sitting president. And it's something that I will be pondering in the days coming forward because the Senate does not come back into session until the day before the inauguration on the 20th. So the Senate clearly can't hold an impeachment trial between now and when Trump is out of office. Can the Senate impeach him and revoke those things from him when he's no longer a sitting president? I'm unclear if that can legally be done, but we will see. So let's talk about the 25th Amendment. The 25th Amendment allows for 
the vice president to become president in the cases of presidential death or incapacity. It allows also for the vice president and a majority of either the principal officers of the executive departments or of such other body as Congress may by law provide transmit to the president pro tempore of the Senate and the speaker of the house of representatives, their written declaration that the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office. The vice president shall immediately assume the powers and duties of the office as acting president. Thereafter, when the president transmits to the president pro tempore of the Senate and the Speaker of the House of Representatives his written declaration that no inability exists, he shall resume the powers and duties of his office unless the vice president and the majority of either of the principal officers of the executive department or of such other body as Congress may by law provide, transmit within four days to the president pro tempore of the Senate and the Speaker of the House of Representatives their written declaration that the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office. Thereupon, Congress shall decide the issue assembling within 48 hours for that purpose, if not in session. If the Congress within 21 days after the receipt of the written declaration or if Congress is not in session within 21 days after Congress is required to assemble, determines by two-thirds vote of both houses that the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, the vice president shall continue to discharge the same as acting president. Otherwise, the president shall resume the powers and duties of his office. So it does require that two-thirds supermajority. It does require quite a lot of timing. And again, I don't think there's time quite to execute this either, but this was contemplating a president that was physically and mentally incapacitated, not really considering a president that had just gone off the rails. So it's interesting. It's interesting to see these conversations happening, and it's a part of our Constitution that is little used and little discussed, so it's interesting to see the constitutional scholars contemplate it. Do I think it will be invoked between now and January 20th? No, I don't. Do I think that it should be? I don't think this is the right procedure. I think we're in a situation that the political party, in this case the GOP, is at this point responsible for consulting strongly with the president to advise him to resign from office. Do I think that that will happen? Nope. I don't think he will listen. I think that the president is at odds enough with the Republican Party that party leadership and their advice means nothing to him. We've seen him lash out at the vice president before his Twitter was taken away. And we've seen the vice president, who has been loyal to this president, break with the president and say, my duty is to the Constitution. So, I mean, basically, the letter read like, sorry, bro, I don't know what you expect me to do, but the Constitution says this is the shit I'm doing, so this is the shit I'm doing, because at the end of the day, my job is to the Constitution and not to you, because American presidents are representatives of the people. They're not representatives of themselves that has been lost here. So into, it looks like impeachment proceedings. Politically, I have questions about how this will proceed. I think that this could be a very frustrating thing for President Biden trying to get his cabinet members approved and trying to get his first hundred days up and running in a successful way while we're still rolling out pandemic relief hopefully, and rolling out pandemic vaccines, those things seem to need to be the focus of a first 100 days to start off a strong presidency. And these concerns of impeachment, once Trump is out of office, might cloud that transition. But we will see. Those are, those are their decisions to make. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Is this the most important thing that needs to happen for the Democratic Party, or is the focus a very strong first 100 days and getting the appointees through, getting all of his positions secured, and moving into COVID relief? I will be very interesting to see politically how that plays out, because there are 
bigger decisions for each party to be made in the next nine days. So there's a lot happening, but let's talk about these grounds for impeachment a little bit. The grounds for impeachment come from statements made at that, um, what was it called? The March to Save America rally where Trump spoke, Trump Jr. spoke, and Rudy Giuliani spoke. I don't know if there were other speakers. Those are the three speeches that I focused on when I was going back and looking at them for this. I'm also including transcripts of Trump's speech and Giuliani's speech in the show notes and description in case you want to go look through them. The statement that seems to be keyed on here is the last statement I'm going to talk about because I'm going in order of the speech. There were a few things that struck me as so incredibly wrong that we're just going to go through them and I'm going to tell you why. First of all, Trump, again, indicating in this entire speech that somehow the A, the election had been stolen, but it had been stolen from the people in the crowd and that that somehow it was going to be fixed by Mike Pence or fixed by the senators who were going to object to certifying electors was just disingenuous because there was no actual legal way for that to happen. He also said, quote, look, I'm not happy with the Supreme Court. They love to rule against me. I picked three people. I fought like hell for them. One in particular, I fought. And then he continues to say, quote, and you know what? They couldn't give a damn. They couldn't give a damn. Let them rule the right way but it almost seems that they're all going out of their way to hurt us and to hurt our country, to hurt our country, end quote. What in the ever-loving fuck is this? No, the job of the Supreme Court is not to be on your side, not to mention the people he picked tend to lean originalist, which means they tend to lean stricter rule of law of what the Constitution says. And what the Constitution says is that they're not loyal to you. They're loyal to the Constitution. So they are going to rule to uphold the laws of this country, trying to to tell anyone that the Supreme Court's doing the wrong thing by upholding the law. You might disagree with how they interpret the law, but it's their job. But saying that you put them there and therefore they should rule, quote, the right way, end quote, is appalling and a complete misinterpretation of what the fuck their role is. And it was, I know there are other parts of the speech that might be more offensive to some, but that was one of the most offensive things to me because The senators asked, especially in these last um, hearings with Amy Coney Barrett, you know, are are you going to be loyal to Trump? Is there some kind of quid pro quo with Trump? And she's like, no, that's I'm no, that's not what this is. But clearly, based on this statement, that's what Trump thought it was. And I mean, I guess now we know that that's exactly what he thought it was. But that's not what the Supreme Court members were ever going to do. They're not there to be loyal to one person or to one party or to be swayed. That's why they are lifetime appointees. And that's why we have three branches of government, checks and balances, not do what you want. It offended me deeply. The next quote was, quote, we have come to demand that Congress do the right thing and only count the electors who have been lawfully slated, lawfully slated. I know that everyone here will soon be marching over to the Capitol building to peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard. So that was the first time he mentioned marching to the Capitol. And again, it's clear that there is frustration there, that there is a thought that some electors have not been lawfully slated, but no state sent two slates of electors to try to sort it out. All the states said that their electors were lawfully slated. Going on, finally, later in the speech, he said, and this is him talking about his own thought process, quote, but I said, something's wrong here. Something's really wrong. Couldn't have happened. And we fight. We fight like hell. And if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore, end quote. And that is the statement that has been kind of keyed on in the context of this entire speech as being inciting to the group that stormed the Capitol. 
Now, nowhere in this speech does it say, go storm the Capitol and stop them from counting the votes. It doesn't say that. But I'm going to leave the transcript for you to read it and see if you thought that this was an incendiary speech. It definitely turns up the pressure. It definitely gives people misinformation that this election had been stolen and somehow there are unlawful electors being slated down the way. But those are the statements that are being keyed on, which has brought up lots of constitutional scholars saying, is Congress going to try to impeach a president for political speech? So that would actually be the government censoring speech of a sitting president. And is that okay? Or is this speech, speech that is so um, incendiary and speech that incites violence, that it is not protected political speech and it is inciting speech? So the conversations around free speech with this are going to be had and should be had and are going to be had with regard to, is this impeachment impeaching a president over protected political speech or not? And what context do speech and social media platforms play? I will be honest, for me, the statements that I had the most trouble with, I have trouble with all of it. None of this should have been said. And getting people together and continuing to tell them that a result can be had that can't be had should never be done. Because you have a very large crowd of people thinking that somehow magic is going to happen and Mike Pence is going to do something that he can't constitutionally do. Problems with all of it. But Giuliani's statements to me are worse than anything that the president said. And Giuliani said in his speech before the president, quote, over the next 10 days, we will get to see the machines that are crooked, the ballots that are fraudulent. And if we're wrong, we will be made fools of. But if we're right, a lot of them will go to jail. Let's have trial by combat. I'm willing to stake my reputation. The president is willing to stake his reputation on the fact that we're going to find criminality here. Well, we haven't seen it yet. And there are now, there is now a very large lawsuit that we will get into another day with regard to Sidney Powell being sued by Dominion in over a billion dollars or being sued for over a billion dollars. But those statements I find to be tremendously more incendiary than the president's statements. And I would love to know what you think about that, but both transcripts are included. I want to know what you think. The trial by combat and insinuating again that, that the, you know, the machines are crooked. There just hasn't been evidence of it yet. So where is the evidence? If the machines were crooked, okay. okay. But all of the courts that have been presented this evidence have not found that. So at some point, will there be a continued investigation? I don't know. But for the purposes of this election, we are at the end and it is done. But we are not going to be done with conversations of free speech. And conversations of free speech are often uncomfortable and hard to have because speech that people don't like is still protected speech. And again, this gets into conversations where you have to take emotion out of it and go, what is protected speech and what is not protected speech? And where is speech protected and where is speech not protected? The First Amendment right to free speech is the right to not have the government silence your speech. It is not the right to not have Twitter silence your speech, though that is a whole nother conversation that we're going to get a bit into in just a moment, but it is government censoring speech, which is why the impeachment process based on statements made at a political rally rises a free speech issue. Now, generally, there are categories of speech that are given less protection than other categories of speech, and that includes things like obscenity, which, (laughs) okay, Um, we're really worried about like sexy, sexy things in this country fraud, child pornography, speech that's integral to illegal conduct, speech that incites imminent lawless action. That is what Congress is going to say, that the president's words incited imminent lawless action. And then speech that violates intellectual property law, true threats, like true actual criminal threats, and commercial speech such as advertising because it's commercial speech. But notice it doesn't say things like hate speech, speech you don't like, 
speech that's rude, those things are still protected from, again, government action. So where the conversation about free speech and impeachment will come into play is whether the president's statements in that speech are inciting imminent lawless action. And again, we will see. Let's talk about social media a little bit. We know that Twitter and Facebook and others have just banned Trump permanently. We know that Parler, an app that touts its own First Amendment values, that it protects speech, that it doesn't use algorithms, that it's secure, it doesn't track our users, but also it's complained of to be the hotbed of hateful speech, of organizing this insurrection, and it's being alleged to be a hot button of you know, hatefulness and kind of far alt-right conspiracies and people who want to overthrow the government and all the things. It has been taken off of the App Store, the Google Play Store, and then Amazon Web Services, which is like the underlying hosting service of most of the internet, has taken it off of their services. Parler then sued Amazon Web Services for breach of contract and antitrust And we will see how that goes. Parler's arguing essentially in that case that, A, it is anti-competitive behavior because hate speech is present and violent inciting speech is present on Twitter, that Twitter is another client of Amazon Web Services, and that the contract gives 30 days for Parler if they're going to be taken off the platform, which would give them notice to you know, switch to another platform, find another service to host them. So that is kind of the core of that lawsuit. We will see what happens with that. Lawsuits are not slowing down in 2021. We've also seen the ACLU come out against Twitter removing President Trump. And the ACLU's statement is, quote, for months, President Trump has been using social media platforms to seed doubt about the results of the election and to undermine the will of voters. We understand the desire to permanently suspend him now, but it should concern everyone when companies like Facebook and Twitter wield the unchecked power to remove people from platforms that have become indispensable for the speech of billions, especially when political realities make these decisions easier. They continued to say, quote, President Trump can turn to his press team or Fox News to communicate with the public, but others, like many Black, Brown, and LGBTQ activists who have been censored by social media companies, will not have the luxury. It is our hope that these companies will apply their rules transparently to everyone. And that really is the big conversation of the moment, is transparency in how rules are applied and the even application of rules on social media. So if you're going to bounce somebody for inciting or for tweets that they are saying incited violence, then others who tweet the same things or similar things in different contexts also should be removed. I have no problem with transparency in how social media does things. I have thoughts. But either way, the German chancellor um, was trending on Twitter today, Angela Merkel, for, and I hope I pronounced that right, Merkel, 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 I hope I pronounced it properly, states that the Twitter ban on Donald Trump is problematic. I applaud the use of the word problematic. It's one of my favorite. Through her spokesperson, she said, quote, the right to freedom of opinion is of fundamental importance and that she considers it problematic that the president's accounts have been permanently suspended. I think that this gained traction for a few reasons. One, the chancellor is not a big Trump fan. Two, there are some calling out the hypocrisy of maybe perhaps her opinion is that government should have the right to censor people and not tech companies. Either way, there is quite a lot of calls in the international leadership community for Twitter to not ban political figures in this way. So we will see what happens with that. Of course, I've been talking about the Section 230 debate that has been going on. Both parties have and are trying to struggle with what type of regulation is appropriate with regards to social media. 
how much government regulation should be on social media companies for how they implement their policies to silence people. Because at the end of the day, these are private companies. So if private companies are choosing to censor speech, should they be able to be sued from the people that they censor and have Section 230 protections removed? Though the argument on the other side of that is, if they are not protected under Section 230, which allows them protection from lawsuit, essentially for things that people say on their platforms, if that is removed, will they censor more heavily to protect themselves from liability? And that is one of the concerns about shifting Section 230. So then is it that they have to incorporate some more transparency into the way that they wield the power of silencing, removing accounts, and it brings it more into play with the fact that you now have a competing app that was rising to compete with Twitter being stripped off of all platforms based on what I see right now as perception. I have not seen a ton of evidence that the people who stormed the Capitol were plotting that on Parler. That doesn't mean more facts won't come forward. I would just like to see all of the facts about why Parler was the problem, or is it Twitter striking out against their own competition? I tend to be cynical and I have questions. I'm not saying that everything that was said on Parler is okay. It's not. Any free speech platform is going to have things that none of us want to see and things that are hateful because unfortunately, a lot of hate speech is protected free speech. So it'll be really interesting to see how these conversations play out. It's just very hard to have intellectual conversations about the freedom of speech, about protecting speech that you hate, especially when the speaker is somebody that you also hate. And having those conversations in a non-emotional way, thinking down the line of, hey, how does this play out? Because there are plenty on social that are like, you know what, screw Trump, whatever comes to him is fine. It's like, but we have to look down the chessboard and see what the next, you know, what the next moves are and what precedents this is setting up and whether those precedents can be dangerous and take the person out of it and evaluate the situation without the personality. And that is where the conversation really lies about people on social media being targeted based on ideology. And that for me is deeply concerning, even when I don't agree with the ideology, no matter what ideology it is, targeting someone based on beliefs or targeting somebody based on religion or race or orientation is very, very problematic to me. And I don't know the resolution on it. We will see what happens. These conversations need to continue to be had. And I hope that as we are in the last days of Trump's presidency, that we will be able to have these conversations in a broader way without his polarizing personality smack dab in the middle of these very, very important conversations. I also am fairly skeptical when it comes to uh, tech companies because Parler was running off of the thought and the promise that they were not tracking people. So they didn't use algorithms to block things. So they had to manually go in and remove reported comments and comments that violated their own terms of use. But that's because they weren't tracking people. So when we have apps that are dedicated to privacy or dedicated to not tracking and it takes them more time to respond, is this going to keep happening? Or is it something within this app specifically? I'm very curious to see how that starts to play out. I'm very curious if Twitter and Facebook are just trying to smash their competition as the government has alleged that they are doing. And I'm very curious if part of this ban of President Trump is because Twitter and Facebook would really, really like the Democratic Party to not remove Section 230 protection and also not implement greater controls of them because now we have a party in power that has the opportunity because they have both the House, they have 50-50 in the Senate and the President, they have a chance to really take head on data regulation and consumer privacy. Both of those things have been done much more strongly abroad than they've been done here in the U.S., 
people have been pushing for more stringent privacy regulations here, and Facebook and Twitter have been pushing back. So was this a political move in Twitter and Facebook's own best interests to maybe appease the party in power so that they would not regulate them, saying, hey, no, we're regulating ourselves. You don't need to pay attention to us. We've got this. I wonder. I just, these, are, these are ponderings. I would love to know what you think about it. Thank you for hanging with me through a thick and challenging political topic, but a very, very valuable discussion that we need to continue to have with each other with compassion. Because regardless of who the president is or who is in power, conversations around free speech always need to be had. Conversations around the boundaries of social media, I think, are growing and need to continue to grow. It's not okay to just say, well, we don't like them, you can ban them. Because there are voices that need to be heard. And when the tides turn, what other voices will those be? So I have deep concerns. I have deep concerns over silencing people with unpopular opinions based on ideology or anything else. I think, I think I've made that clear. Thank you for hanging with me today. I would love to hear what you think about this episode. Please feel free to at me on Twitter about it because yes, I am still on Twitter. Leave me comments on YouTube about it or have a conversation with me on Instagram or through text. I am here to continue to have these conversations with you. And I appreciate you for being open-minded and willing to have this conversation back with me. Thank you, Awesome Blonard. I hope you have a good one. And we are still in the middle of a pandemic, even though we're not talking about it at the moment because there's so much other shit going on. So raise a glass. May your Wi-Fi be strong. May your toilet paper be plentiful. May your family be well. And may the odds be ever in your favor. I will talk to you next week. Bye. (laughs) 